0: were and the fact that shame and fear drive us away from following after the redemption that we've been given. We saw that over and over again in the the patriarch's life. And at the very end of that we see Joseph giving forgiveness to his brothers and saying that what they had intended for bad, for harm, that God had intended for good. That is the way that God works. He pursues us redemptively throughout history, providing good, not just for Joseph. Joseph didn't just say, it was just for me. He also said that it was for all people, that many people would be saved. Now, that's where we were. 400 years have passed. And we are now at a place that we talked about in our second Sunday of this series, which was the Exodus If you remember, we talked about how the Exodus is God's pattern of redemption, that in the Exodus, we watch how God restores our right relationship with him, our right relationship with ourselves, our right relationship with others, and our right relationship with place. Now what's taken place is God has fulfilled the promise that he gave to Abraham, that this small group of people have expanded and grown so much so that Pharaoh is afraid of them. And so his desire is to put them into slavery, which is what he does. And then we know that God sends Moses to bring about the Exodus, to bring them out. And he restores that relationship with them. They wander. They go through the Red Sea. And we find them now at this place in Exodus 19 and 20 at the Mount Sinai. Now listen to these words that God says to them. He calls up Moses and he says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now remember, what we've seen in the patriarchs is this uncanny ability to get on God's throne. (laughs) This uncanny ability to have fear and shame cover them up and force them to try and figure out God's plan all on their own. And do the work themselves. And so God has called them to his covenant. He said, you are my people. Follow where I'm leading you. What God is about to do here is he brings about this people, this group that has grown, and he is forming them into a nation. He is bringing them in, and he says to them, you, you are my prized possession. You are a nation of priests. You are a holy Nation. And it's for all people. Now remember, that's the one thing that we found out about Abraham and the patriarchs. That God's particular choosing of one person is for a blessing for all, both through his saving grace that comes through this family and by his common grace that spreads out to all the world that keeps it going. Remember, we talked about the fact that God's particular Choosing is much more universal and broad than our attempts to universally choose people. Because we very quickly begin to negate people in our lives, don't we? But what God says is you now are a nation that will be set aside. You are a nation who will be my prized possession. Not saying that the other nations in the world are not important. As a matter of fact, he very clearly claims his sovereignty here. All people are mine. All nations are underneath me. But you are to be a treasured people, priest, and a holy nation. See, what what God is doing here is he's moving them to be not an us versus them type nation, but an us for them type nation. When he calls them a nation of priests, He is saying to them, my expectation is that you will pray for those other nations, that you will love those other nations, that you will minister to those other nations, and ultimately that you will be my witness of what a sovereign, holy, right, loving, just God is to those nations. See, elected into a redemptive relationship with God, they are called to dwell with the Holy One of Israel. And Israel is then charged to live out God's moral character in a life of righteousness and justice so that all its national and cultural life right, is a testimony to God's moral character and his redemptive love. Essentially what God is doing here is he's saying all the other nations in the world make idols. They build things up to be things that they worship. And what I want you to do, Israel, is show them that things and idols are not what save them, but it is a relationship with me that does. So you are to represent my works and my redemption to all people. And now I want you to know how to do it. And that's where the Ten Commandments come. Now every year in the States, when Easter rolls around, they show the movie with Charlton Heston playing Moses, The Ten Commandments. Well, now there's two things here. Number one, I don't know why they show it during Easter, completely. I mean, I understand Passover happens during Easter, and it's usually right around the same time. But it just always seemed odd to me that that's the movie that they showed, maybe because they didn't want to show uh, depictions of the crucifixion on national TV, free TV. But but they always showed that. And I would find that I would always want to watch it and anticipate the scene where Moses as Charlton Heston is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. The problem is, is it took them about two and a half hours to get to that point in the movie. And as a young man, I normally would fall asleep before they ever got there because they started at eight o'clock at night and it was long past my bedtime. But one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it is about the stone. It's about the tablets. As a matter of fact, it's so much about the tablets that when he comes down and he sees this this pagan worship that's going on, he breaks the tablets, right? And we all think about the tablets and what they are, how hard and and sure and steadfast, other than the fact that he breaks them. (laughs) Another thing that's happened in the States most recently is that a lot of courthouses had had either pictures of the Ten Commandments in the back of the courtrooms. Some even had monuments of the Ten Commandments. And a lot of folks have been saying, we need to remove those. We need to take those out. And the argument was, is they are too tied to Christianity, too tied to the Bible, too religious. Not that there's some moral code that stands outside of this religion, but because they're attached to that, they're religious. So it's an external understanding of it. And I think often when we come to the Ten Commandments, we can sometimes think that way as well. We can read the Ten Commandments and we go, there's ten of them there. We learn maybe if we're children that have been raised in the church, what they are. We maybe even memorize them. We forget them. (laughs) Then we memorize them again. And we think of them as a checklist almost, and and that's human nature. Quite honestly, if anybody ever gives you a list of things, or they call it 10-something, we automatically in our minds go, where's the little box that I'm going to tick next to that so that I can make sure I've done it? And so oftentimes when we come to this place, I feel like when we hear the Ten Commandments, we often think externally that they're stone, that they're solid, or, or that they're a thing that if we remove them, that they have no consequence over them. Any physical sign of them, if they're taken away, then they have no effect anymore. But the reality of the Ten Commandments is that they are tied directly to the ongoing covenant that God set from the very foundation of the world. That it is God revealing himself to us even deeper so that we understand what it looks like for people who follow God, who have been redeemed by God, to live. Now, the first thing that we need to recognize about the Ten Commandments is this, is that it's not a substitute to the covenant that has already happened. It's only a concrete externalization of the covenant. It's written on stone, yes, but it was never intended to distract from the gracious promise that was given to Abraham in his covenant. And Paul argues that very clearly in Galatians 3 for us. Let me turn there and read to you what he says. Galatians 3, 17. says, speaking of the law. And this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards... This covenant to Abraham does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So it's not voiding out the covenant. As a matter of fact, it is proving the promise. It is showing what is possible for us within the covenant itself. So the first thing we need to understand is when we see the Ten Commandments, it's not a substitute. The second thing that we can see is it's not a new way to get to God. By looking at the Ten Commandments and looking at it as a a checklist, it's not the way that we're going to move to God. It's not the thing that makes us acceptable to Him. As long as we keep all these things, all ten of these, then I'll be okay then I'll be good, and God will accept me and love me. It's interesting that Psalm 119 talks a lot about the law. And if we think of the law as a checklist, a thing that we must do, then we hold our lives up to it at all times, and we go, well, let's start with the easy ones. I didn't commit adultery, and I didn't murder today. I haven't stolen. Oh, have I bared false witness? Oh, that might be harder. Did I take the Lord's name in vain? And I hate to admit that probably did happen when I was driving, or when the wind was blowing so hard yesterday. Do I covet things? Wow. Mm. And it begins to break us, it begins to put us in a place where we don't recognize it as a calling to God's redemption. Like I said, Psalm 119, interestingly enough, talks a lot about the law of God, and it talks about it being a comfort or a love for it or that it brings peace that it brings delight that it brings liberty (laughs) do we think about the law of god that way someone uh, psalm 19 says it's sweeter than honey sweeter than honeycomb more precious than silver see when we begin to look at it as a way to get to god and we begin to analyze ourselves next to it, we very clearly see that there are places in our life that we don't match up. Oh, yes, sure, maybe externally we hit the high marks. But we do know our own hearts well enough to understand that we don't always hit the mark. And so the law, this, these Ten Commandments, are not a new way to get to God either. As a matter of fact, they rest solely in the fact that God is the one who saves and delivers. How does he begin it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The other reason why we need to make sure we don't see it as another way, because it does become a checklist very easily, and that's both a negative and a positive thing for us. We can look at it positively by saying, I'm not doing these things, so I must be good. Or we look out and say, they're doing these things, so they must be bad. And we automatically separate ourselves, and sometimes we'll say, I can't hang out with people that do these things. You've heard that saying, I don't smoke and chew, and I don't go with the girls that do. Yeah? Yeah? We do that, right? We separate ourselves out based on what other people are externally doing. And it becomes very negative and positive. We build ourselves up in our pride. I got seven out of ten this week. When in fact, that's not the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The purpose is to remind us that God has moved and redeemed. And because of that redemption, it enables us to be free. And that's one way that we look as well at the Ten Commandments. We look at it as restrictive. When we hear rules or regulations that are put on us, we begin to think how restrictive those things are. It starts from an early age when we are, but little children, and our parents give us instruction. We hear it and our hearts go, you're not going to tell me what to do. We don't say it out loud. I'll clean my room the way I want to clean my room. And it continues to move forward, even when the restrictions are good for us. You all see those restrictions. You saw them today when you drove here. You'll see them when you drive home, 60, 70. And you'll think to yourself, I mean, 60, really? Maybe 70's okay. I mean, it's 100, so 120 should be. We look at them as restrictive, that they come on us. But what we need to see them as is freeing. How many of you have been to a zoo? A zoo. A zoo. How many of you have been to a nature preserve? There's a huge difference between those two things. When we see the Ten Commandments, we often think of them as a zoo. You have a zoo and you take an animal out of their natural habitat and you put them into a false habitat. And in that false habitat, you let them live in a very restricted place. And they learn to grow and, and wait for their food to come from handlers. And the food comes and they eat the food and then they go out. And a lot of times zoos, even though they're trying are just concrete and stone and fences, sometimes glass so people can see through them. But it's nothing like the place where those animals had come from. And so those animals are restricted and not really who they're truly supposed to be. Our human desire for freedom very much looks at the Ten Commandments, at God's law, at this covenant gift as a zoo. That you've taken me out of the freedom, God, that I can do whatever I want, however I want. It's my life. I'll do it my way. And you've put me in this cage. Now granted, you feed me and you take care of me and that's all great, but I'm not really the lion that I was meant to be. But, if you go to a nature preserve, you'll notice that most of the time the animals are in their natural habitat. And where they were supposed to be. Now what we don't see is that on the borders, sort of far away, keeping the the lions from the antelope and, and keeping the tigers away from things that they would like to eat, there are fences that are separating them and keeping them safe. But primarily those animals are able to live in a way, in a form, in a fashion as they were created. And that, in fact, is sort of how this covenant gift of the Ten Commandments is for us. It allows us to operate in how God has made us to be. It gives us wisdom and how we are to be established in God. But it does provide protection. It gives us boundaries to be cared for. Notice here that in the Ten Commandments, most of them are prohibitive. There's only two that aren't. There's two that are permissive, that give permission. The rest are prohibitive. Now when we hear that, we go, oh, see, clamping down. God's a taskmaster. He's clamping down. But realize that if God wanted to tell you exactly how a relationship needed to be done, he could have commanded it. He makes a way through Jesus but that these commandments, these prohibitive commandments, leave wide open opportunities for life. Again, these are not commandments that establish our relationship with God, but they prohibit our relationship with God from being destroyed. So they're not restrictive for us. They're freeing. They allow us to be who we are supposed to be. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually puts it this way when it talks about, uh, in uh, chapter 19 of it, it talks about the fact that this law was given through Adam first, but then when we receive it in the Ten Commandments, that it shows us what our duty is, the first four show us what our duty is towards God and what our duty is towards man, the six, the last six. And when I hear the word duty, it makes me go, ugh. make things happen. I have to work. But instead, what the Ten Commandments are doing, not to disagree with the confession, but it's taking the idea of the duty and showing us that in it, it reveals the character of God to the world. That in fact, that it is a movement from I have to do these things in order to be liked. To an understanding that God's covenant comes after me, His redemptive pursuit comes after me, and so I am devoted to Him, and it becomes an act of worship, it becomes an act of devotion to Him, and it shows His character to the world. Now, notice that these are just the first ten commandments. There are six hundred thirteen other commandments that happen in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, but these ten stand alone. They are the ones that all those other ones are built on. And they're the ones that show us and showed Israel at that time how to live with equity and holiness and justice and mercy. It shows us that those things, equity and holiness and justice and mercy, should characterize every endeavor of the people of God. Now notice there's a difference in a word there, equity. A lot of times people will say fairness. Fairness is a big thing here in Australia, isn't it? I'll let you know, fairness is a four letter word in our house. Here's the reason why. To be fair, that means everybody gets everything the same, right? But not everybody needs everything the same. Fairness says, well to be fair, You got four quarters or a quarter of this, and you get a quarter of this, and you get a quarter of this, and you get a quarter of this. And that's all fair. And let's say we're talking about a pie. So you get a quarter of a pie, and you get a quarter of a pie, and you get a quarter of a pie, and you get a quarter of a pie. But you have a diabetic there, and a quarter of a pie will send them into a diabetic seizure and coma. And you have somebody like me who would like a quarter of a pie that probably ought not have a quarter of a pie. And then you have an athlete who can probably just run it off. An equitable division of the pie would say, let's get you an apple because this pie will hurt you. Let's get you some celery <laughs> because this pie will hurt you. You can have the whole pie. Right? What the Ten Commandments do in this pursuit of God's redemption for us, in, a, in, in this increasing of the covenant relationship that He has with us, it allows us to know how we are to live. And it moves it very quickly from the external into the internal. Because we will look at it externally. It's stone, right? It's a monument, and if it gets taken away, it doesn't have effect anymore. But what we know is that God changes things. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Deuteronomy 5 and 6 is the retelling of this. It is bringing back the Ten Commandments to them. Deuteronomy is actually sermons on the law. That whole book is telling us what God desires. And over and over and over again, it tells us that the commandments, that God's law, are about life. That it is about things going well for you. And not in the way that we perceive well. Not in some ethereal, wonderful blessing. But in the fact that the Creator God who before the foundation of the world knew exactly who you were, knew exactly how you would be, and said, I will come after you, I will pursue you to save you, and I will make things right. I will show you how to live. And then he sent Jesus. Because all these covenants rest completely on Jesus. Jesus tells us that he came to fulfill these. That they are all done. That they are complete in his obedience. In the work that he's done. It does not cause us to be able to have laissez-faire, do whatever we want. But what it does is it empowers us through his resurrection to be able to step into them internally first with our hearts. To move towards the freedom that they bring. When my children were younger, well, some of them are still young, because I've got a broad swath. (laughs) When they would get in trouble, we would have a conversation before punishment would come. And that conversation went a little something like this. I would say, what does disobedience bring? Now, at the very beginning, they wouldn't know how to answer that. What they were thinking is an angry dad. (laughs) But we begin to talk about what disobedience brings. That disobedience brings slavery. That disobedience brings bondage. That disobedience brings pain. And then we would talk about what obedience brings. What does obedience bring? Obedience brings freedom and life and joy. How do they know that? Well, because they were getting ready to be punished because they did something wrong. That's not happy, happy time. That brings pain. And if we continue to disobey and we continue to walk in ways that are opposed to the way that God has set forth his world, the right way that it should operate, the way that the sovereign creator of the world knows that it should operate, it will bring slavery and bondage to us. But obedience, empowered through Jesus Christ, brings freedom and joy. And so we should never look at these prohibitions that are given to us in the Ten Commandments in the light of restriction. We should look at them as a calling to the covenant that God is pursuing us, moving towards us, and in that he enables us to live them out. And when we fail, which we will, his grace. In my heart, I assure you, I've broken every one of these. Probably multiple times in the last week. (laughs) We have to move away from believing that our worth in the covenant is based on what we do. says i'm the one that brought you out of egypt i'm the one that freed you from slavery i don't give you these things as bondage i give you these things as release it is the ongoing covenant of god his redemptive pursuit for us so if you are here today and you are hearing this and it sounds so foreign to you And you think, there's got to be something I can do. There has to be something that I need to do to prove myself. Hear me. No, there's not. Jesus has done it all. And you are here and you've been following Christ and you've been looking to please Him and you think your good works are what's saving you. Stop it. They're not. You are saved by grace and grace alone. That's why we love that song it's truth to us and that's why our body should be will be by God's grace a place that people can belong before they believe and that as they believe they become the body of Christ they step into the covenant that God before the foundation of the world started working on in his pursuit for us through his son Jesus Christ let's pray Jesus, let these words be your words. Let them bring glory and honor to you. It's in your name we pray. Jesus, amen. Would you please stand with me and respond to this word by repeating the Apostles' Creed with me? I will say to you this. Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell, and the third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's sing together.